My name is Matthew Sparaza. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. Welcome to The Tangent. Father Dwight Longenecker, it's great to have you with us here today to uh, talk about your new book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, this is this has been my, my Advent reading, actually, uh, and it's been, it's been great going through it. So I want to just thank you for a very fruitful Advent because of this book. Uh, it's been really beautiful to, to meditate on uh, the shepherds and what's going on there in Bethlehem. Tell us a little bit about how this book came to be and uh, what you're trying to, to teach us. Right. Um, well, <clears throat> about five years ago, I first produced a book called The Mystery of the Magi, which was a study of the historical background of the Magi story. Uh, and uh, after the success of that book, I thought, well, I'd like to look into the shepherds as well. So I was due for a sabbatical, uh, and I uh, asked if I could take it in Jerusalem. So I spent two months at uh, the monastery of St. Stephen in Jerusalem, which is where the Dominicans are, fr- French Dominicans, living with them in the monastery and uh, using their famous library. This is the base, This is the location of the famous École Biblique, or Bible School which is where the um, Dead Sea Scrolls were first taken to be studied. Um, and uh, so I had access to their world-class library um, and lived there uh, and worshipped with them in the, in the Abbey Church uh, and mm. had two months in Jerusalem and Bethlehem to discover more about the Bethlehem shepherds and the, the histor- historical background of the uh, infancy narratives. And perhaps we want to talk about that a little bit because that's the background for the book. Yeah, I think that's that's great. I mean, we're coming right up on it. So um, the infancy narratives are, are obviously very powerful, and they become so familiar to us. Uh, we read them year after year. Uh, Linus recites them for us as he holds his blanket, and then he drops the blanket when he talks about uh, "be not afraid." So we we like we have this this great sense of of the the story being very much ingrained even in our culture, but. Sometimes our culture doesn't fully capture what's what's really present in those infancy narratives. Yeah, uh, in both of my books about the, about uh, the infancy narratives, and remember, we're dealing with two different stories here. Matthew tells the story from his from, from the perspective of probably Saint Joseph's memories, uh, and Saint Luke tells the story um, from the perspective of the Blessed Virgin Mary and Jesus' extended family's memories, um, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, like any stories that are told from two different perspectives, there seem to be some, some things which the scholars believe clash or don't harmonize. But in fact, if we realize that uh, we're looking at the events from two different um, perspectives, it helps us to understand that there's basically two different stories here. Uh, no, do, not two different stories, two different approaches to the same story. Uh, and over the years, of course, we have conflated the two and put them all put them together. And in addition to that, yeah. in our culture... Uh, over 2,000 years of Christian culture, uh, we have added things to the stories for various different reasons, which I talk about in the book. But basically, um, I like in all those additions to kind of be like being kind of like being the decorations on the Christmas tree. We have a pear by a, a bare pine tree, but we also have all the decorations which make it beautiful for Christmas. And we've done this really with the Christmas stories as well. We have the bare bones of the story given to us by St. Luke and St. Matthew. But over the years, for various reasons, uh, lots of extra things have crept in. And I should say, this has happened to the Christmas, the infancy narratives, the Christmas story, more than any other stories in the Bible. Um, Mm -hmm. The Christian traditions and the preaching traditions uh, and the um, cultural traditions have crept in 
and in addition to the and in addition to the stuff that we've added to the stories themselves, which we can talk about. Of course, Christmas has also accumulated an awful lot of other um, extra traditions, you know, and a lot of them are magical: singing snowmen and flying reindeer and a fat elf who squeezes down your chimney every Christmas Eve. Um, some I saw him re- described on social media as um, a geriatric cookie glutton. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, so so a geriatric cookie glutton squeezes down your chimney magically every every Christmas Eve. You know, we've added all these extra magical things. And the problem with this, and I don't want to be a Scrooge or a Grump or a Grinch, you know, and say this is bad. However, the problem with all these magical elements is that it's very easy, therefore, in our culture to regard the infancy narratives of Jesus Christ in a similarly magical way. And to be honest, there are some pretty seemingly magical elements to the story. You know, you've got um, an angel who appears to a beautiful girl and tells her she's going to be wonderful one day. That sounds a little bit like the fairy godmother to Cinderella. Um, Okay. Mm. You've got uh, singing angels in the sky to the rustic shepherds. That sounds a little bit like like Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, You know, you've got... uh, Magical wizards who who follow a uh, mystical wizards who follow a magical star across the desert sands. I mean, mystical wizards. That's the stuff of every fairy tale. I mean, you've got you, instead of Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, they could be called Gandalf, Merlin, and Dumbledore. You know, because <laughs> magicians are are a stock character in in fairy tales. So it's right. easy, therefore, to um, relegate all of the nativ- nativity um, stories of Jesus. <clears throat> to that big, magical, beautifully wrapped box we call Christmas magic. Um, And I wanted to actually explore the historical background to say, hang on, no, uh, these events really happened at a particular place in a particular time. Let's find out how much we can, uh, by by rereading the gospel narratives themselves, Mm -hmm. but also looking at the archaeological evidence, the historical evidence, the textual evidence, so we can piece together as much as we possibly can about what it was really like. Do you find doing this that that it becomes then, as you're looking at the history, the archaeology, do you think that makes it less less magical but more mystical? As I've been reading your book and kind of coming up on these these historical details and and these other elements, it's it's really profound to see what would have been happening historically. But it doesn't take away for me anything from the the beauty of the story, or even the well, the rustic shepherd. You know, it's it enhances it actually. I hope not. But um, somebody has joked um, that both of my Christmas books have have had something to displease everybody, because <laughs> because you see the biblical scholars, because of this tendency for the infancy narratives to become um, magicalized, if I can turn make it, make it into a verb. To turn, be, to turn them into these magical fairy tales, the biblical scholars, um, as you will probably know, have generally said, oh yes, the infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke. Um, we know that those were really sort of beautiful stories that were constructed by the early church in order to j- make Jesus seem more supernatural. Um, in fact, none of it really happened. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> Um, so I displeased them by actually showing the historical background of the infancy narratives, but I displeased all of the traditional Christians who were very attra- who were very attached to all of the extras that I spoke about, and they're mm-hmm. saying, "What you mean the wise men didn't re- didn't ride camels? 
because in my Magi book, I suggested they actually rode Arabian horses. Um, uh, can I still have camels in my crib set? You know, and, and stuff like this. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something there to, to make everybody unhappy. But also, I should add, something to make everybody happy. Because the traditionalist Christians should actually say, look, he's actually showing that it was historical. Uh, right. And the liberal Christians who don't think it's historical are able to say, well, he was able to show that some of those things are actually magical or, 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 or sort of accretions right. to the story. Right. You're separating the wheat from the chaff. Um, I actually think it's really it's really poignant um, and it's, it's appropriate that a book like this comes out uh, in our age. Right. Because we have we have I mean, I'm, I'm 26. Right. And so I believe that I have been. Given the culture that I was born into, right? I'm I'm from we're from the New York area, right? Um, there's like a there's like a built-in skepticism right. to my approach to the vast majority of of texts that I study. Um, so reading this, it's I guess it's not quite the historical critical method, you know. It's it's more it's more pastoral to be strictly like an academic historical yeah. critical method. Well, uh, the true historical critical method would actually be objective and academic and say, if it is historical right. critical, let's criticize the things which came into the story over the centuries, which don't belong there, but let's look at the history and, and keep the things which do belong there, which is what I've tried to do. Uh, right, right. And, uh, and, and I love that. And just to um, be able to um, expand on this a little bit further, you know, you said about your age and the age that we live in. Because of the age that we live in, we actually have more historical evidence for the New Testament and what happened and what it was like than, than our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers did. Mm -hmm. And this is for a couple of interesting reasons. One is that archaeology is a comparatively modern science. It really only gets off the ground mm -hmm. in the early 20th century. And at, this is the time, historically, when the um, Holy Land begins to be opened up to, to the West again, because it had been shut down by the Turkish authorities and the Muslims, and Christians and Jews were not allowed to do any excavations there. But now, in the 20th and 21st century, archaeologists have gone in and uncovered a huge amount of information about Bible times in the Bible lands, um, and this has been combined also with the science of forensics. And so mm. we have some archaeologists, for instance, who are specialists in the most arcane little narrow areas of knowledge. I'll give you an example. There's one guy who's an expert in fossilized dung, Okay, <laughs> so if you're an archaeologist and you're in a dig in the Holy Lands and you come across some fossilized camel poop, okay, this <laughs> this guy can take it to a, a laboratory, slice it up, put it under the microscope, and then and analyze it scientifically and say, ah, oh, this camel was of this particular breed. Wow! And he ate this particular diet because we know it, the seeds are there in his poop. Um, and we know that those seeds are from the plants which only grew in this particular area of the Holy Land. Therefore, we can trace this camel's um, journey from, let's say, Egypt uh, to Bethlehem or from wow. Saudi Arabia to Syria. Uh, and we can determine almost when that happened and almost who he was traveling with. So That's this amazing. is the kind of stuff that which we incredible. know now, which nobody ever knew before. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, um, you mentioned that St. Joseph – now, this this was in your other book, right? But that St. Joseph might have uh, shared his memories with St. Matthew and, and therefore have been the source for the infancy narrative in Matthew's gospel. Um, 
something that I was really excited to speak about during this interview was Joseph. And, and you kind of break open the tradition that Joseph might have been an older man. But now you've also caught my attention with that particular comment you've made. So would you mind just talking about both of those things? About St. Joseph? Yeah, about how St. Joseph might have been might have been older um, and also how he might have been the source for Matthew's gospel. Yes. Um, <clears throat> first of all, we have to go back and say that in this sort of area, there's going to be a lot of, like I mentioned about forensics and archaeology, there has to be a lot of speculation as well, where we take what mm -hmm. we do know and we piece it together and we try to fill in the blanks as best we can by speculation and, and other general knowledge. So mm -hmm. one of the documents from the early church is called the Proto-Evangelium of James. And this document, scholars believe, is uh, from the location of the Jeru early Jerusalem church from as early as the end of the first century, certainly by the middle of the second century. So it's a very early document. It's not in the Bible. It's an, it's an apocryphal writing, it's, but it is very early and from the Jerusalem church. And uh, this is the document where we learn about the... Uh, childhood and the and the, the birth and childhood of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, her parents, Joachim and Anna, and the tradition that she was actually born in Bethlehem, sorry, born in Jerusalem, right near the temple. And that book also tells us about St. Joseph, that he was an older man, and that he was also uh, associated with the temple community. And mm -hmm. we're assuming, therefore, that his he was actually his hometown was Bethlehem, just six miles from Jerusalem, and that he's associated with the Jerusalem temple, uh, and it's the elders of the Jerusalem temple, including Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who's a priest in the temple, who actually arranges for him to be the betrothed husband of this young girl, Mary, who is under the, um, she's a kind of a ward of the temple community. At least that's the tradition from the Proto-Evangelium of James, from which, and remember, this was read in the early church as scripture, so that's why in the Catholic Church, the traditions of St. Joachim and St. Anne, uh, and the birth and the childhood of the Blessed Virgin Mary, are so evident right through our tradition. Protestants yeah. will say, well, that's not in the Bible. I know, but it's from a very early document in the church, and it became part of our tradition, mm. and part of the tradition of the East, of course, as well. Wow. So then there's also the tradition or the artistic representation, I don't know, that, that Joseph is a younger man. Uh, and I've, I've heard different, different stories that it comes from uh, Italian immigrants coming to the United States needing a strong patron, so they started depicting Joseph with, with a younger sort of virility and strength and everything. Um, yeah. Where do you fall on, was Joseph old or young? Well, the Proto-Evangelium of James portrays Joseph as an older widower. Uh, and that's where the so-called sisters and brothers of Jesus in the gospel come from, that they are Jesus' half-siblings because they're the um, children of Joseph by an earlier marriage, uh, and that he is an older man. Uh, and I, I'm, I, that's actually my opinion. The church allows us to hold either opinion, but the opinion yeah. that he was a young man uh, and a perpetual virgin like the Blessed Virgin is a later tradition that has come in. Hmm. Uh, I also... Um, have the opinion that he was an older man because he disappears from the gospel scene before Jesus's ministry starts. So right. the the assumption is that he has passed away by that time. Uh, in regard to your detail about did he know Matthew? Well, um, 
St. Matthew is in the Jerusalem uh, circle because he's one of our Lord's apostles, uh, and it's very possible, therefore, in the early days of Jesus' ministry that St. Joseph is still around uh, and that he actually did know St. Matthew. But if um, the Proto-Evangelium of James is from the Jerusalem church, we know from the Acts of the Apostles that Jesus' extended family, the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. James, the less... Uh, were actually part of Jesus' extended family, and the tradition is that his extended family were actually members of the Jerusalem church in the early days, Mm -hmm. you know, the days just after Pentecost. And therefore, if St. Joseph didn't pass those stories on to St. Matthew himself, then his um, children by his earlier marriage and Jesus' half-siblings would have done so. That's fascinating. Now, with with Bethlehem being close by, uh, six miles from Jerusalem, uh, and so Joseph being then from this from this overall area, uh, let's talk a little bit about that that trip into Bethlehem, uh, where they have to go to be to be numbered to be counted for the census, and the no room at the inn, because this is a, a fascinating part of the the infancy narrative. But as we can see from every Christmas pageant, uh, the no room at the inn sometimes takes on its own meaning. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been trying to trace the background of where the grumpy innkeeper comes from. And um, <laughs> I have a theory that he, uh, he actually comes into the, into the tradition from the medieval mystery plays in England. Mm. Because they were famous for taking the gospel stories and dramatizing them and adding colorful figures, especially adding, sometimes even adding some bit of slapstick and a bit of, a bit of comedy to it. So... I haven't been able to trace it down specifically, but that's my hunch. Hmm. But I must admit, I, I I might enjoy seeing some slapstick and and you know my local elementary schools, you know, <laughs> yeah, infancy narrative. If I play. remember my studies of drama, medieval drama correctly, I think that they actually they not only had the grumpy innkeeper, but he was usually accompanied by a nagging Jewish wife. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, just chasing him around and making sure he keeps the he keeps the inn nice and nice and clean. Yeah. Um, but the the word that that they use for for inn uh, that gets yeah. translated, excuse me, as inn with the the infancy narrative. I, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering what it is exactly. But uh, let, let's talk. Can we talk a little bit about how that translation comes to mean what we is in it, English? Is it Cataluma? Consider? Did I say that right? Cataluma. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. It's the word Cataluma, the Greek word Cataluma. And in the King James Version, it's translated as an inn, and so this is where the quaint phrase has come down to us and entered into our culture, there is no room for them in the inn. This is where the grumpy innkeeper comes from, and I should say Mm -hmm. also, this is where the rather modern tradition of the Holy Family being homeless comes from. You know, it's... um, it's a it's a it's a very popular sort of trope nowadays to to portray the Holy Family as refugees or immigrants, um, or homeless people. Because of that little phrase, there was no yeah. room for them at the inn, and this idea that on that frosty winter night the innkeeper shunted them out to the drafty stable because there was no place else for them. Well, yes, okay, but no, not really. Um, okay, <laughs> Cataluma is better translated guest room. And we know from the archaeology that uh, of the time that the um, typical sort of village home was a one or two room adobe type structure, um, very often with a guest room up on the roof. 
We, curiously, that guest room is referred to in the Old Testament. You might remember when the Elijah, the prophet, the, the prophet Elijah um, was given accommodation, or maybe it was Elisha, was given accommodation in the widow of Zarephath's house. Yes. And he right. was dwelling in the guest room on the roof, okay? So these simple peasant homes had a guest room on the roof, and that was referred to as the Cataluma. Another interesting detail the detail I find interesting is that in the wedding customs of the Middle East, um, after the engagement, the groom-to-be goes back to his father's house and builds an addition onto his father's house, which is called also called the Cataluma. So it's sometimes also the bridal suite. Hmm. And when Jesus says, I am going to my father to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also, he's actually... Um, implying that he is the bridegroom and he's going to prepare a place for us for his second coming. So that mm. sheds light on that passage too, in a way. So um, to go back to the, to Bethlehem on, on Christmas Eve, they arrive at their relative's house because Beth, uh, Joseph is from Bethlehem. And the relative, not the innkeeper, the relative says, I'm sorry, there's no room in the guest room, uh, but you can use the stable. Now, the other detail, which I found so interesting, is when I was out in Bethlehem and, and, and Jerusalem, we're driving around, you can actually still, still see a lot of the caves which are dotted across the hillsides. The hills are all soft limestone, and so you can make caves or enlarge caves that are already there. And even today, you will see some Bedouin structures, some Bedouin homes built in front of these caves. Mm. Uh, and I uncovered an article in the Chicago Tribune from, I think, 2019 or 2009, I forget exactly when, interviewing shepherds in the Kidron Valley who still live in caves or live in houses built in front of mm. caves. So to put all those pieces together, um, the homeowner says there's no room in the guest in the in the guest room, but you can use the cave, which is the area just behind my house. Right. where the animals would be st um, stabled and where there would be storage. So mm. it was not a drafty stable, uh, a drafty barn. <laughs> it was likely to be a dry and cozy and warm cave, which was basically the storage room behind their house. Right. Mm. And and also giving that to them would have been uh, fulfilling the obligation of hospitality, which is such a part of the culture there as well, that anybody who comes who's in need, I don't have a room that I can give to you, but I will give you whatever I have. I might not be able to right. give you the very thing that you need, but here's here's what I can give. And what I can give to you is this is this space. Yeah. And the um, middle, this, the, you're right. The Middle Eastern culture is very big on both family loyalty and on hospitality to strangers. So it's very, very unlikely that they would have been homeless on Christmas Eve. Mm. I mean, I experienced this when we went to Bethlehem. My tour guide was a lovely Palestinian guy, um, not very wealthy at all, but he. we spent the day together. And he showed me around Bethlehem and gave me a tour of the Bethlehem Shepherd's Caves and so forth. But at the end of the day, he was very insistent that I come back and meet his family and have, drink coffee with them and share his and, and meet him mm. and see his home and, have, and share hospitality. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get invited into into their their life even more. Um, now those shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Um, this is something that I it was really striking me, uh, anticipating Christmas Eve and and kind of going into it that. You know, reading your your book got me thinking that Christmas Eve, if you if we go to one of the vigil masses or to the midnight mass, we're we're joining the shepherds keeping watch, and you point out that the the type of sheep 
native to Israel, n- native to that part of the world, have their lambs uh, it, at this time of year, as opposed to what maybe Western Europeans would have been used to, which is lambs that come in the springtime, um, <laughs> yeah, closer right. to Easter time, yeah. so closer to the Easter season. There's this old sort of saying from the skeptics who are usually European academics uh, who are saying, well, we know that shepherds are only in the fields at night when it's lambing season, and that's true, and lambing season is in the spring, so therefore Jesus could not possibly have been born in December. Well, if you're in Germany or England, yes, the lambs are born in the spring, but with a little bit of research, you discover that the ancient breed of sheep in the Middle East is called the Awasi, and the Awasi, as you just said, give birth in November and December. And so if they're keeping watch over their flocks by night, it's for, for the lambing. But this is the other thing that I, I hadn't realized and I was, I was really struck by, that because of Bethlehem's close proximity to Jerusalem and because of the need for lambs for temple worship and sacrifice, uh, keeping watch over the flocks by night for the lambs was even more important because if something were to happen to one of those lambs, it couldn't be used as a sacrifice. Yeah. If that lamb had any blemish, right? Right. And some of our uh, listeners may have come across a very charming story, which is out in the internet, and that is that these shepherds in Bethlehem were sacred shepherds, raising specifically raising the thousands of lambs and sheep that would be used at the temple sacrifice, mm-hmm. and that the Passover lamb especially would have to be um, set aside for the priest to examine it to make sure it was without blemish. And that the shepherds would wrap it up in strips of cloth and lay lay it in a little feeding trough, waiting for the priest to come and examine it. And therefore, when the angel said to them, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, and this shall be a sign unto you, that this would be the sign that they were going to witness the the shepherds who were raising the Passover lambs were going to find the true Passover lamb, who was the Christ Mm -hmm. child. So this is actually one of the, I mean, that's a very charming story, and it's a delightful story. Um. And in fact, one of the reasons I wanted to go and research this book and go to Bethlehem in Jerusalem was to find if I could see if I could find any evidence for that story. Mm-hmm. I did not. No. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and I searched, every, I searched high and low through the libraries, um, the Franciscan Library and the Dominican Library. I arranged interviews with scholars at the Hebrew University. I went to Bethlehem. I spoke to... Um, present-day shepherds about their customs back through the ages. I, I searched through the Bedouin culture, books on Bedouin culture about this. We traveled to Jordan um, and spoke to some um, shepherds and to some people there about, about these traditions, and I wasn't able to find a trace of it. So they didn't swaddle their, their lambs? No, but the shepherd in Bethlehem laughed and he said, we don't do that with the lambs, he says, but we still wrap our babies like that. <laughs> hmm. That was always the thing that that struck. Once I found out that you swaddle a baby, I mean, I was I was a little a little kid hearing about the child view in swaddling clothes. I didn't really know what that meant. Then I found out that it's a very common, normal practice that that you yeah. do that for your kid and it helps them and everything. But um, it, it kind of struck me that how how would that be such a, a striking sign for the shepherds that a baby was wrapped in swaddling clothes when that's the characteristic of what a baby would have. Well, it's so a I've always part- kind of been struck by that. <clears throat> Some. Uh, I did find some other scholars asking that question, and they sort of, they like to sort of pick through the Old Testament verse by verse to see if they can find any hint in the Old Testament, which is, would have made this a sign. And there are a few little things like, 
Uh, there's a verse in wisdom somewhere, I believe it is, about a, a king would be swaddled would be would be swaddled in swaddling clothes, um, and another one about a king who was going to be um, in a, lo- a, a lodging while he's a traveling so he's traveling somewhere, but it was pretty far fetched. I I I think really um, the sign is either that. That charming story I told really is true, even though there's no evidence for it. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, as I propose in my book, that the sign is that actually the baby is born into a home just like one of yours, wrapped up in swaddling clothes just like one of your babies would be, and laid in a manger because the manger was actually an indentation on on a half wall between this cave and the house. And it would have been a natural place for a cradle for any baby, not just the one born in the stable. So, so with that said, um, my my wife and I have been married for like a year and a half, and so we you went to get Rome that number our, right. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and we went to Rome for our honeymoon, and at the I think it's the Basilica of Saint Mary Major, but I might be wrong about that. They. They say they have the manger, or at least a piece of it. They, have, they also they, said they have, that they there's a piece relics, in have, the east now. They have relics from the manger in Bethlehem. Yes. So, yeah. so how do I, how do I, uh, you know, make those two things work together? That it's an indent in the wall, and also, is it that they just placed something within that indent? Well, I think there's a couple of options. One is that the um, stone carved manger may very well have had a kind of wooden tray that was an insert right. on it like a little basket side kind of thing yeah yeah um the other and this survived somehow and became a relic in in saint mary major the other option of course is that it is an ancient wooden manger from bethlehem which some people said oh that must have been the manger bed and it, it became the relic right. the third option is of course is that the relic is bogus right Okay, we have to, you know, while we venerate relics, we have to admit that some relics are fake. Yeah. yeah. And um, Father Carlos Martins, who's a um, friend of mine, <clears throat> who's the North American expert in relics and, auth- and expert in authenticating relics, mm-hmm. he said to my face, he said, yeah, it's good I'm here to authenticate them, and, he said, and I can authenticate them because there are people out there producing r- fake relics even today. He said... Mm. They take bits of chicken bone and they put it in a in a reliquary and they sell it on eBay, you know. Oh my right. goodness! Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a humbling approach too. And 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 again, right? It's kind of similar to that. Well, I don't know if it's similar to the historical critical method. That seems like way too far fetched to say. But rather, you know, it's that idea of listen, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come at this in an academically honest way, you know. Um, the best story that I have heard when it came to authenticating a, a particular relic, not not officially, but rather for an individual who just wasn't sure, you know, um, there was a church. It's it's in our diocese, Father. I'm not sure if you know which one it is, um, but they ha- they say they have a relic of Saint Joseph. Um, and I heard the story hmm. that there was there was two priests at this this parish, and the, the parochial vicar said to the pastor, like basically something along the lines of, "Come on." You know, and and the pastor said, you know, I I had that approach myself when I first came here, but then at some point, um, there there was an exorcism that needed to be performed, and the exorcist asked if they could bring this relic to to be a part of the exorcism, 
and and it was effective in some some manner, right? I don't have the exact details, cool. right? But but the idea that it was like this personal encounter with the relic, yeah, uh, that was the proof needed for this particular priest. Um, I've not but, heard yeah, that I heard, in, in I our diocese, but I heard a similar story when I was in Canterbury, the home of the, um, of course, Saint Thomas of Becket, mm-hmm. and um, the the priest said there was an exorcism, and this priest said to the demon. Um, which saint um, do you hate the most? Uh, he said, Thomas, said the demon. So the priest um, went and said, furthermore, he said, so, St. Thomas the Apostle. He said, Beckett, Beckett. <laughs> so in Canterbury, they had a relic of Thomas of Beckett, and they took that relic, and the exorcism was successful. Wow. Right. <clears throat> there we go. Um let, let's talk a little bit about the the shepherds as witnesses that they come to to venerate the Christ child, uh, and and then it's recorded and handed down to us. And Mary ponders these things in, in her heart um, mm-hmm. as we're reading the infancy narratives, and we and we see the shepherds gathered around the crib, and and we envision that in our manger scenes and everything. Uh, why is it important that the shepherds would have been witnesses? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all. St. Luke tells us that they were witnesses because he says specifically they went and told everybody abroad what this wondrous thing that had happened. So they did share that news all around the, the, the village and with everything they, everyone they knew. But it's important for a couple of other reasons. First of all, <clears throat> to go back in history a little bit, uh, when St. Helena in the 4th century comes to Bethlehem in Jerusalem, she wants to find the site of our Lord's crucifixion and the site of his birth. And the site of his crucifixion turns out to be, of course, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the whole story that goes along with that site. But she also comes to Bethlehem and discovers the cave where Jesus was born. Um, And she was able to find the cave where Jesus was born because the locals remembered where it was. And they remembered where it was there three or four hundred years after the event because a hundred years after the event, the Emperor Hadrian had destroyed the site and built a pagan temple on the site in order to try to obliterate Christianity. So a hundred years after the event, the Emperor Hadrian built a temple on the site because the locals had remembered it. And then another 200 years later, Helena comes in and destroys the pagan temple and builds the Church of the the Nativity there. So when you visit the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, you're most certainly visiting the site of our Lord's birth. Yeah. Um, and the shepherds were important because they were the ones who passed down the tradition of where he was born to the locals so that by the time of a hundred years later, um, Hadrian knew where to build his pagan temple to obliterate the site. Mm. But uh, some decades before that, St. <clears throat> Luke, writing his gospel, would have received the tradition from those same descendants of the shepherds. So to put mm. this in the time frame, Jesus is born, for the sake of argument, the year zero. By the time the Gospels come to be written around the 50 or 60, which I think they're quite an early date is, is, is to be preferred, um, the shepherds themselves may still have been alive. Certainly their, their children and grandchildren were still alive to be able to tell mm. Luke this story. Mm. Yeah. Now, now, now what do you say to a skeptic of oral tradition? I'm sorry? 
what do you say to someone who's skeptical of the concept of oral tradition, right? We live in this modern age. You have everything on video, everything on audio. Our AI is so good, you can fake video and audio. Um, <laughs> I actually have a chapter in this in the book uh, in which I explain about the oral tradition. And um, what we've basically discovered is that you have to understand the Bedouin culture in the Middle East to understand how they pass on tradition. Okay, this is largely an illiterate, uh, an illiterate um, community. And even today, they have the same way of tra passing on tradition. And there are three different methods. One is <clears throat> strict memorization, word for word. And that's mm -hmm. what they use for things like genealogies um, and uh, particular historical events which have to be passed on um, word for word. And we find that, mm -hmm. of course, in Luke and Matthew. They begin with these genealogies, okay? Right. The second is anecdotal, where someone can just tell a story, like anybody tells a story of something that happened and they've thrown a few jokes and so forth. And if those stories become elaborated and exaggerated, everybody takes that with a pinch of salt, okay? But the, the one in between is what interests me. It's called, I forget what the, what the name of it is, it's um, uh, something like... Um, guarded tradition or something where a story will be told from the past and the elders who are responsible for the tradition will correct the storyteller if they make mm -hmm. a mistake about the story. In other words, they have to pass it on accurately. However, there's a little bit of leeway there for the storyteller to add a little bit of characterization maybe or maybe a little bit of made-up dialogue as long as it doesn't contradict the basic facts of the story. Mm. And we find this in Luke's gospel, where, remember, one of the shepherds says, let us go into the village and see this wonderful thing which we, we've heard about. So he throws in a little bit of dialogue, a little bit of characterization. And so we right. find these very, these um, middle two forms of uh, oral tradition are actually very reliable. Um, mm. Both, the, of course, word-for-word -word memorization and what I call guarded tradition, where it has to be accurate, although there's a, there's a little bit of leeway there. Hmm. Something that we'll often see in, in biblical criticism or, or commentary is that when certain people are cited in the gospel as having said something or done something, there's, there's a credibility that they're even recorded at all. Uh, this, it, it seems insane that a, a gospel writer would have uh, quoted Mary Magdalene as the first witness of the resurrection because women weren't able to be witnesses, or that shepherds who were poor and outside and uneducated would have been uh, cited as, as witnesses. Why would we include this unless they were telling the truth? Right. Uh, what do you say to that kind of a, a, an approach? Yeah, that's another um, little scrap of evidence which, is, which lends credibility to the, to the infancy narratives, that the shepherds are not... In, in the culture of the time, the shepherds were um, regarded kind of as, as the low end of, of, of the social strata. Mm. There, there's a double-edged thing here. In the, in the Jewish tradition, of course, shepherds have a – there's high veneration for shepherds. Father Abraham is a shepherd. Moses is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. Ezekiel says that God himself will come and be the shepherd of his people Israel. Jesus portrays himself as the good shepherd and tells parables about the good shepherd. Um, David writes – um, the Lord is my shepherd, the Psalm 20, famous Psalm 23. So there's this high veneration for the role of the shepherd, but at the same time, in the culture of when Jesus is born, the Roman society holds shepherds pretty, in pretty low esteem. They had a reputation for being rustlers and thieves, uh, for um, not 
paying their income tax, for being filthy and dirty and disreputable. Mm. Um, and in the Jewish um, culture, they were considered to be unclean because they dealt with feces and blood and, you know, giving birth and all that messy stuff. So they were unclean and not able to come into the temple worship. So, yeah, they were at the lower end of the, of the social strata and continued, continued con, considered to be, you know, untrustworthy or disreputable. So therefore, their um, witness, the fact that their witness is recorded, is ironically actually a strong argument for its accuracy because St. Luke includes them, although you would have thought as an educated man he would not have. He would have tried to find somebody more reputable. Hmm. Yeah. Is it possible that the... Uh, that the well, I need Father Sam, remind me, when, when Mary Magdalene is the first witness, but does she say anything in particular where uh, someone else isn't around? I mean, I suppose Christ was there, but... Yeah, uh, again, we're used to the kind of accuracy where we have t- we have recordings of exactly what people said and, and um, right. you know, all the records. No, it's not absolutely accurate, but we do know enough about or the, or the traditions of oral um, transmission right. in, in that culture to know that the gist of it is accurate. Um, right. Yeah. Right. It's in the essence of yeah. it. Yeah. We also, we also know also that in the ancient world, um, disciples of religious teachers would actually take notes, and they believe that the earliest collections of Jesus' sayings and parables were very likely actually um, t- taken from written notes that the, his more educated followers would have, would have been able to write down. Wow. Hmm. I didn't yeah. know that. It's great. Uh, so, Father, then, as we're coming up on Christmas, as we're getting ready to do this, uh, what would you suggest to our listeners uh, and to anybody besides picking up a copy of this book themselves to read, which they really should do? Uh, how do we how do we spiritually join the shepherds and and meditate with them on the mystery of the birth of the Lord? Well, I I would uh, really suggest that people go into their Christmas celebrations as they always do, looking with a sense of reverence and joy to the birth of the Savior, Um, but at the same time add to that uh, a deeper knowledge of the historical events, because the deeper knowledge of the historical events helps us to really root the experience in what I call the the gritty realities of the Incarnation. Mm. Um, Yes, it was a real house in Bethlehem, a real stable. with a real mother and child and a real manger bed and real shepherds. And to understand more about the historical details helps us to appreciate um, and reverence the miracle of the Incarnation even even more. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. This just, is great. I'm... I'll just share one of the other details with you, which I, which I, which I, which I find delightful. And that is um, the kind of wordplay that goes on um, in the Christmas story, because Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem, as you probably know, means house of bread. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it means house of bread in Hebrew, but in Aramaic and in Arabic, it means house of flesh. Hmm. And so, he who gave his flesh for the life of the world and who is the bread of heaven is born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread and also means the house of flesh. So John 6 is connected to the infancy narratives in a profound way. This is beautiful. Yeah. That's great. 
Well, I want to thank you for a great Advent because this has been my my reading and my preparation uh, leading up to Christmas. So thank you very much for for giving me some some great inspiration. Uh, but thank you also for for putting this out and, and helping us to have this great yeah. historical pers- perspective that enriches the whole experience of not just something that's magical, but something that's truly mystical as God becomes man and comes to dwell with his people. Good. Well, thanks for your time, guys. God bless you. Have a great much Christmas. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Do you know the secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds? <laughs> I do now. No, <laughs> I mean yeah. it. When I say that I've been I've been reading this book all through Advent, I, I mean it. This has been my spiritual reading, little pieces at a time, and it is, it's been so fruitful. Uh, and yes, I, I feel like he's not trying at all to undo the the magical components no, of, no. of Christmas at all. Uh, but I, I so appreciate... Although, admittedly, when he called Santa Claus a geriatric... Uh, I think what did he call him? A geriatric cookie swallower or something? Cookie addict or something. I don't know. It was funny. It was funny. Something that I've, I've actually always liked about his about Father, Father Longenecker's writing style is there's a sobriety to it. There's a, a directness mm-hmm. to the things that he says. Uh, so he's not like he's not going to shy away from different things. And I, I really appreciate how he approaches it that way. Like, let's be let's be really honest. Right. Let's be really direct. Let's be real. You know, and it's very powerful. And that and that showed up in the that showed up in the tangent on relics because very I feel like it's very rare that you have a prominent Catholic speaker who says we've got three options with this one option one exactly what it says option two it is in fact real but this is how it right. happened option three it's fake it's fake we have to be honest that it could potentially yeah. be fake um and yet and yet it comes out the other side is more credible because you know we're able to say we're able to share stories well i know this relic isn't fake because well you know it played a role in this exorcism and the exorcism was was right. successful or even even just to be able to say look let's let's be really honest that there have been some people who have been dishonest in history and sometimes when when right. people are dishonest over the course of history sometimes their dishonesty is unintentionally passed on but it's okay for us to right. acknowledge that and it doesn't destroy anything it doesn't take away from from the right. ultimate truth because exactly. uh, just as much as we can say that there have been some people historically who have been dishonest there's all, there have also been people who are honest so again, what I really appreciate is how just how honest and, and direct he is. But this is such an interesting thing that there's there's real historical value to understanding the shepherds and to what was happening, and mm-hmm. that even our our present day manger scenes that that we have. Um, and he says a lot of the reason that it comes from that that we get the idea of the barn is because that's what Saint Francis of Assisi had available to him when he made the first live nativity. <laughs> right. And so even right. even the idea of our manger scenes is not rooted in the history of Israel or Bethlehem. No. It's rooted in the history of Assisi, which is it is a hill city. Uh it's it's in a hilly right. country and everything. Um but it is also it's in, in Italy. Italy, exactly. So <laughs> a distinct culture, distinct architecture, everything else. That's actually part of what I love is that it's okay for us to apply some of our own cultural understandings to things. Uh and it doesn't take away from right. how we've depicted things, but it also Definitely. doesn't mean that we can't dive more deeply into it, which is which is really beautiful. Right. Um, I, I really do love that. Yeah. The universality of the Catholic Church does not disregard the historicity of yeah, the Catholic exactly. Church. That's a great way to say it. Well done.
Well done. Yeah, Thank no, you, you. you. You deserve that. You, you really <laughs> deserve that. I mean, now I just have the bad news that I've got to break to all of the kids who were in my Christmas pageant recently that um, none of it happened this way. You guys got it all wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our poor little innkeepers are going to be heartbroken. <laughs> Actually, I really love that that story. Yeah. That was the one that that really stood out to me that the the couple would be betrothed and then the the groom would go to his father's house to build the dwelling. So yes. in other words, though they were betrothed but before they lived together, so the time in which they didn't live they were betrothed. So legally they're married, but it's when they live mm-hmm. together that the marriage is going to really take place. Well, in the interim, that betrothal mm-hmm. or what we consider to be engagement is actually Joseph mm-hmm. is building that extra room at his father's house. Mm-hmm. So it's that time in which, and maybe the room doesn't need to be built, maybe there's already room, but so they just symbolically take the time, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But how powerful. And then when he makes that connection to Jesus saying, if I go to my father's house, I will build, I will, there, there's a room for you. There, in know. my father's house, there are many rooms and I will go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you also may be because I'm going to espouse you to myself. I mean, it's so powerful mm-hmm. to, to read that and then to recognize I it. I know. Yeah. This is the stuff that makes the Bible really exciting. And actually, yes. that's the other yes. p- piece maybe. If I was going to take anything else away from it, it's that... The Bible doesn't become less exciting by knowing the history that's behind it. It becomes even more exciting to me, you know. Yeah, but that tracks, you know, when you learn that something is more credible yeah. than you prior thought it might have been. And I mean, to be fair, it's not like I thought it was, a, you know, I didn't think the Bible lacked credibility. No, I know that. I, you're a believer. I understand. But, <laughs> yeah, but, but regardless, yeah. you know, regardless, it's still. Uh, May, right, if theology is is faith-seeking understanding, right, that's why you can actually look at the historical critical method and say, well, it really is a legit form of theology. Yeah. You know, it's well, a legit this is the, the other thing. The historical critical method can, can get exaggerated in a negative direction where people start yes. thinking, okay, we're going to disprove the things that are in the Bible by showing right. how his, right. history demonstrates something different. But that's actually not the purpose of right. the historical critical method. The historical critical no, method is meant not. to help you understand context and the context for these right. stories in a, in a fuller way. And really, that's, that's what he's mm-hmm. doing in The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. So... This is really cool, and to, to yeah, get him great. talking about this. Um, so, Father Dwight Longenecker, thank you very much. We've got the links in the show notes to uh, all of his stuff and to in this book in particular. Mm-hmm. Do you want to sing great. We Wish You a Merry Fantastic. Christmas, or should we not do that? Let's not do that. Um, let's just wish <laughs> all of that. our listeners. But we do indeed wish you a Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas, everybody. And a Happy New God Year. God bless you. Peace. <laughs>